Hello and welcome to Amplify. What an amazing day it was, wasn't it? That's Music from Ireland, a dataset by Jennifer Walsh, a work that was recently premiered at the National Concert Hall. We'll hear from Jennifer and a number of the musicians involved in this piece later in the episode. How it must have sounded in the olden days with Molly Malone walking around selling her cockles and mussels. Also on the show this week. I feel like music can incrementally help produce social change by just expanding the number of contexts we can think through these difficult ideas in. We talked to some of the people involved in the Biosphere Festival which took place in September at several outdoor locations around Dublin. Yvonne, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Jonathan. So there was a great response to last week's episode on Eric Sweeney, and this is fitting for a composer who was so central to music in Ireland. Yeah, very warm responses on our social media, Jonathan, you know, right across the, the week after the episode was published, and of course, featured on the Blue of the Night, uh, on Bernard Clark's Blue of the Night on RT Lyric FM last week as well. And a great response after that too. And uh, I think it was one of the most listened to episodes in its first week uh, of all the Amplifies. So as you say, a fitting tribute for a composer whose music is much, much loved. So if you are listening to this podcast for the first time or have come across it on SoundCloud, we'd love if you would subscribe. Find us on wherever you listen to your podcasts by searching for Amplify and CMC or visit anchor.fm forward slash Amplify hyphen podcast and subscribe from there. And so Yvonne to this episode. And if we were to choose a theme for this week's show, it's really about working in new music in the time of COVID with two recent events that took place here in September, the Biosphere Festival and Ireland, a data set at the National Concert Hall. Yeah, wasn't it exciting to cover both of these events, Jonathan, because, you know, it's like a beacon of light, really, isn't it? Uh, In so many challenges, so many postponements, so many cancellations, so many frustrations. It was really a kind of a boost that we all kind of needed. You know, when the Biosphere programme was was, uh, uploaded online and we were kind of all looking through it, I mean, there's the obvious challenges of working outdoors in Ireland. Be it the, you know, the height of the summer, you're still kind of nervous about it, multiplied by the COVID restrictions, because, you know, I know that the event was was uh, supposed to be ticketed and uh, Jenny's uh, concert also meant to have a small audience. But then when more restrictions came in, you know, they had to really think about how to present these works um, to audiences in an online way and how to uh, ensure that they were presented in a way to engage audiences, you know, and even the collaborative aspect has so many challenges. The fact that, you know, they couldn't come together to a very late stage. I mean, collaboration is so central to contemporary music. To think that they had to sort of wait to the last minute and and think about all those logistics of how they could actually rehearse. I mean, it's just mind boggling, really. I think for for Sebastian Adams, and we'll hear from him, and for Jennifer Walsh, they're two composers who think very carefully about presentation, about production, about the whole experience 
of of the performance, you know. And so it's really interesting to hear how they dealt with it. So let's hear first from the Biosphere Festival. I cycled over to Borough Beach in North Dublin on a fine day in early September where I spoke to composer Tom Lane about his piece for Horn, the performer Hannah Miller and composer and Kirkos director Sebastian Adams. Here it is now. My name is Tom Lane, I'm a composer and we're standing on Borough Beach which is a beach near Hoth in Dublin and we're going to be performing a new piece I've written uh, it's called Tide and it's for solo horn and beach and sea so the way that the water comes in with the tide is going to affect the piece and it's, it's kind of one of the elements that influences the notation of the piece. One of the big issues we're all aware of is the way that uh, sea levels are already rising and will, will be rising more in the future. I was thinking about how to portray that in a short performance. My name is Hannah Miller. I'm a French horn player from Wexford. The tide is supposed to influence the section of the piece that I'm playing. There's a A, a section and a B section and as the tide gets further in I'm supposed to get louder and adapt so it's really nice to have that kind of feeling of like the nature influencing how you're playing concerts are not normally held on beaches and stuff so it's really refreshing to do something outdoors and i live quite close to the beach in wexford as well it's nice to feel connected with the sea in in a musical way as well It just seemed like the perfect spot for a performance with, with, with a solo horn player because the, the horn's association with fog horns and, and kind of sea sounds and the idea of the, the single lone player standing out in the sea. Uh, and then you have this great view behind you to Island's Eye and Lamb Bay Island. It works so well in this setting because it just projects so far. When I was rehearsing here the other day because we had to do kind of a sound check for it, like even just facing in different directions because the projection comes out of the bell end of the horn so if I was turning in different directions it has a really different effect on the soundscape and everything. It's almost like treating spaces and locations like, like instruments. The piece begins before high tide and then increases in tempo and, and dynamic. The kind of zenith of the piece is at high tide. And then there's a section when the tide retreats a little bit as well. But the, the player will become partly submerged. Not completely. Um, it's not to show that we will all be completely covered by water. It's just to show that the kind of unstoppable power of the sea is just comes in and out twice a day. You can't do anything about it and it's just built in and it's going to be a huge part of our lives in the future as well. So it's going to, have to draw attention to the, the natural world and, and the tide. I'm Sebastian Adams. I'm a composer and performer 
a viola player and I'm the director of Kirkos. Biosphere is a set of connected events all happening outside in different places, mostly beautiful natural places around Dublin. Some of them are sort of cityscapes and some are that kind of interesting mix of the two. It started from a basic desire to take what we had been doing in terms of experimental music where we were doing a lot of happenings with stuff maybe happening in different places and sometimes simultaneously with a lot of non-musical elements. Taking that and applying it to the outdoors because we just thought that would be a, an interesting next challenge. As we were developing the ideas for Biosphere properly it became clear quite early in the process that it needed to be deeply connected to the current conversations everybody is having around climate change and the climate crisis. You're always looking to try and find new people for your audience, but in the normal way, you're kind of bound to the, the sort of systems we work in, which uh, limit who is likely to come across it. That's one of the wonderful things about going out into the public is that anybody uh, can come across it and you never know who will find it interesting. Something that I've been enjoying is if people are sitting near drinking and making noise, <laughs> brings the music kind of into the real world a bit instead of existing in a perfect vacuum. You can control your environment in, this, in the same way you can a concert space because, you know, yeah. people could walk up or, you know, you could be distracted with something else happening or whatever. Yeah. Get stung by a jellyfish or anything, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it's such a gorgeous day today. I think we got really, really lucky and the sea seems really calm and flat and everything, which is good because I actually, when we came here for the sound check, the weather was quite stormy almost and the waves when I was at knee height would kind of hit into my knees and make me a little bit unbalanced so it was like a little bit scary at times and stuff and the wind was quite dramatic as well. Today is much more pleasant. As we were planning it, the COVID-19 pandemic began to hit. That had a huge impact on are thinking about how to execute it logistically but also the way we got all the pieces was through a call for works like a kind of open one that we sent out to people so it's had a huge impact on the project even though we were already actually planning to do the outside thing which seemed like the most practical way to put on concerts for the entire last six months. It is the perfect time to do this kind of project I think because it's a good time to reflect on the importance of the natural world and the effect that our actions have on that and in the future how things will change. It's a great opportunity to try something a little bit different, a little bit new. That is maybe where music can be uh, very valuable in the kind of political sphere. Tom's kind of thinking behind it is that uh, sea levels are rising and so he's using the, the fluctuation of the tide as a kind of device within the piece. He's not bashing you over the head with the point but I think if you sit there watching it for an hour knowing that that's why he wrote the piece that might sink in in a little bit of a different way than if you read the news article about how Dublin will be at huge risk of like catastrophic flooding if sea levels continue to rise. So I feel like music can incrementally help produce social change by just expanding the number of contexts we can think through these difficult ideas in. This is taking place on Burrow Beach and the performer Hannah is sort of partially submerged in the sea. There is a similarity with your, your own piece, which sure. was for, was it String Tree or String, string, quartet. string quartet? 
And that was done yesterday. Uh, tell me about that work and, and your experience of doing it. It was an interesting moment when Tom sent me his proposal for, for Tide because at my first glance was like, oh no, we have the same idea. And then I realized they were different enough that it was an interesting matchup. We got incredibly lucky, like with the weather and things not going wrong, because it's uh, so hard to predict what the sea will be like. We start on the dry seashore, so the tide comes in around us in Black Rock Beach, which is where we did that. It took about an hour and a half to get up to probably, at least on me, just above my waist, which means when I was sitting down, it was on my neck. It ends for each player when the water reaches their neck. The instrument filling with water is just such a weird feeling. It does all sorts of things like changing the pitch, uh, changing the the kind of way you can hold it. Um, I mean, for, for the cellist, Esselt, it was like the, the cello basically floated for like 90% of the piece. And she was, you know, I think using all her strength to stop it being uh, horizontal. seemed more outlandish before and then while we were doing it it was a bit bit unusual but it felt relatively normal weirdly if you have music that is coming together around a social issue the people making it but also the people listening to it are also coming together around that issue so if people who care about whatever issue you're 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 talking about are gathering as a result that in itself is uh, helping to produce a change Sebastian Adams, Artistic Director of Kirkus, ending that feature on the Biosphere Festival. Next, Ireland, a dataset by Jennifer Walsh, a work commissioned by Sounding the Feminists and premiered in the National Concert Hall's Imagining Ireland live stream series in late September. So normally, pre-COVID, I would have rocked up at rehearsals and chatted to some of the musicians involved in the piece. But as it wasn't possible this time round for obvious reasons, I asked them to record a number of audio diaries about their experiences. And what they sent me back, Yvonne, is really a fascinating insight into how a piece is put together during these current restrictions. Well, I really enjoyed listening back to these audio diaries, Jonathan, and I think everybody's gonna, gonna be the same. Because, you know, I'm probably not the only one that finds it kind of hard to be fully present at an online concert. But you know, this is really different. Um, the atmosphere was created from the first second I found, and it was clear that all aspects of the work, you know, had been really well thought through, staging, lighting, costume, video projections, the performers themselves, of course, because as Jenny says, she knows them very well for many years. You know, the performance was really totally in the moment, the, all five of them really in the moment, and that they brought us from their homes really into the National Concert Hall. Um, you know, they brought us into the moment of the piece, into the momentum of the piece. So it was really interesting to hear the performers and Jenny talk about how much it meant to them to be working together in one room in the development of the piece. That feeling of achievement, accomplishment, satisfaction, you know, 
all those wonderful um, outcomes that come from being part of a creative collaboration, a collective artistic endeavour. And that's really what struck me most, I think, about the diaries. And of course, it was another thought-provoking work from Jenny. We laughed, we cried, and uh, sometimes thought of John Cage, I think. And uh, we all clapped individually in our place of listening, watching as the final note was sounded and the stage went to black. So we'll hear now from Jenny Walsh, Robbie Blake, Nick Roth, and Elizabeth Hilliard. My name is Robbie Blake. I am the artistic director of Tonto Vocal Ensemble, who performed in Jennifer Walsh's Ireland A Data Set. For the performance, Tonto included Blonard Conroy Murphy, Elizabeth Hilliard, Simon McHale, and myself. My name is Nick Roth, I'm a saxophonist. In Jennifer Walsh's Ireland a data set, I was also playing some percussion on the bandier. Quite a lot of amp feedback sounds through the alto. Various whistles, a tin whistle, a folia, a double folia, a kind of unidentified hijaz macam tube. Various object percussion as well, I had some water, some stones, a barber's brush. Uh, which is a very interesting plant that grows by the seaside and makes a lovely kind of ASMR sound. My name is Jennifer Walsh and I'm the composer of Ireland A Dataset. When I first began thinking of the piece, I was very interested in the idea of Irishness as an identity that's performed as something which is constructed socially, politically, artistically, and as such something that we can sort of intervene with and, and change. Our idea of Irishness and our idea of Irish identity is sort of a composite of every film we've ever watched, every image we've seen, book we've read, television program, piece of music, piece of art, all these different bits and pieces that we've sort of collected up over the years and we've sort of built this into an idea of what we think Irishness should mean. It was a really incredible mix of satire and truth that display some of the paradoxes and some of the complications around identity, nationality. The piece really provided a fun and thoughtful, layered way to think about how we construct our reality, how we construct our identity. I think what was particularly interesting about this piece was the uh, meta-narrative. This idea that identity itself is performative, um, that what it is to be Irish or to be anything uh, is a performed gesture, which is, I guess, kind of applying critical gender theory to the idea of, of identity. So all of these markers of identity and place and self and type were kind of up for grabs. Sail away, 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 sail away
piece itself requires a huge variety of different sound worlds and you know, a need to move very quickly from one to the other. Hi everybody! Hi everybody! Welcome to Dane Suez with Moya and Aeon with a silent DH. Our roles were quite varied. They included things like a Foley artist, a computer-generated version of Enya, an Instagram influencer, an eager American tourist on a psychedelic trip to the Hill of Tara. Is an ancient sacred site north of Dublin, where the ancient high kings of Ireland used to be crowned and reign. Hashtag... A proud fermiori, a Brooklyn hipster who's pumped about the 18th century art term, the picturesque, computer-generated Irish step dancer, computer-generated version of river dance, computer-generated Shanno singer. The list continues. You're not playing Enya, you're playing something which has been trained on 10,000 hours of Enya. So that just call, kind of calls into question the whole nature of, of what is that kind of musical identity. That's a mark of Jen's brilliance, actually, that she asks these questions within the music. Given the massive growth of machine learning or artificial intelligence, as we sort of more widely refer to it at the moment, we have this situation where we're creating data sets for machine learning networks to train on. And they show us the biases and the problems and the limits of those data sets instantaneously. And I thought that was an interesting lens to look at the idea of Irishness constructed out of a data set which often has its own biases and its own limitations. My name is Elizabeth Hilliard. I'm a singer. I live in Dublin and I'm passionate about performing newly composed music in collaboration with artists, composers and other musicians. When we were rehearsing, there was eight of us in the room. We were all wearing masks and it was quite weird. On a moment to moment basis, I wasn't really experiencing the weirdness of it. I was just experiencing a wonderful rehearsal where we were all working and enjoying the moments of getting the sound right, getting the look right, getting the feel right. You don't forget about the masks. I mean, you forget that they're on your face and you get used to wearing them and you get used to everybody else wearing them. I must say the two meter distance thing is tricky. It's hard for musicians to be that far apart. And we had perspex screens between everybody in the rehearsal room. And when those were removed on the last day of rehearsals, just the visual of the perspex screens being removed was just, it relaxed you. There was something about that that felt like a barrier. I don't think we ever forgot that we were uh, under COVID restrictions. I mean, it, everything was weird. 
in many ways, the piece will always carry those marks of when we were playing it and why we were doing it in that way. The very fact that it was a live stream at all, the way that the piece was designed was very much a product of its times. The idea that I originally had was that we would have development periods. So I would be able to meet with all of the musicians twice over the summer of 2020, the spring and summer of 2020. And we would be able to work together for three days each time and then have our week worth of rehearsals in the National Concert Hall. I'm very privileged in that every person that I picked was a person that I'd worked with before. Robbie Blake, Blaw, Conroy Murphy, Liz Hilliard, Simon McHale, they had all been part of this huge performance project that I did in the model in Sligo two years ago called The Worlding. You know, I've worked with Nick Roth many times on Ashtach, also on Anglecht. That meant that when I went into the room, even though we couldn't meet for those development periods, we already knew each other. It would have been much more of a challenge if I'd been working with people that I didn't know. The other thing that was a huge challenge was that we're in level three restrictions, Dublin, when we're rehearsing. We can't just come out of the rehearsal and say, let's all go for a pizza together. Let's all go to the pub and have a drink and talk about the piece and also just talk about anything at all. Those sort of social bonding things are really important for musicians and they're really important for these type of projects. Myself now, well, I like a good ruin when I'm on holiday in Killarney in 1805. Because I like the fact that they're all about solitude, neglect, and desolation. Helps me sweet. Performing as part of a live stream, it's quite a different process. It really involves imagining your audience at home. You kind of have to almost ignore what you're looking at. It's just empty seats. Within one's training, one often talks about performance anxiety and maintaining a sense of communication and connection with one's audience. This was, of course, a completely different challenge. How to find ways to connect to an audience that aren't present visually and energetically, but who are absolutely present to what you're doing. It's something that a lot of musicians, I think, have experienced during this COVID period is the, the weirdness of doing a live stream. You don't have this sense of completion when you finish a gig and everyone claps and you have a big hug afterwards and then, you know, you move on with your lives. It's like the gig just kind of keeps going in this strange continuum. One of the biggest challenges was getting our heads around the concept of the live stream. Right up until August, it was going to be a performance for a live audience with restrictions in place. And now all of a sudden it's going to be a live stream. So this was really something we had to get our heads around and there was no way to prep for that until we were on site and we had an idea of how it was going to work. So think of it this way, you have a piece and you're realising that the audience are going to see any one of eight cameras or the video feed, which makes for nine sources visually at any one point. We have to light it for live stream, which means the lighting is much more strong and much more powerful than it would normally be on the stage. Una Monaghan, who's doing sound, can't be in the same space. She's not in the concert hall. She's out in the John Field room because you have to mix the sound for live stream outside of the space. And I'm the director and I'm queuing all the videos as well. And I'm in the inner foyer. So how bizarre is that to be at a premiere of your own work, but not to be in the auditorium? What? 
it's totally possible to continue to work in the lockdown that we're existing in. It is difficult. There are going to be challenges and we absolutely need to remain aware of those limits that we all have. What I've taken away is that care and, and thoughtfulness are equally valuable for artistic projects as the material and the artistic vision is. I think the challenges of making future pieces are going to be different in different jurisdictions. Right now, if you live in Germany, there's been contemporary music concerts and experimental music concerts already taking place for months. So people aren't thinking we have to switch to live stream or we have to do loads more live streams because they've already been having live events happen for months and months now. For example, the university that I teach at, the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Stuttgart, that building was open and the musicians were back in the building in June, in May and June. And if you studied composition there, your piece that you wrote last semester, it didn't get performed to a public audience, but it was recorded. Whereas, for example, in the UK, if you were studying last term, you didn't get to hear your music performed. And who knows when you might get to hear it again. For me, there's going to be huge challenges logistically navigating contracts, for example, navigating restrictions, having all this different high risk areas versus travel corridors versus green lists where I need to have a corona test to enter, whether I can get the corona test 48 hours or 72 hours in advance. All of this logistical stuff is no joke. And musicians are exhausted by it because they're trying to figure out if I travel here, will I be in restrictions? Then do I have to cancel another concert when I come back? And what if I'm there and the restrictions are introduced while I'm there? And what does that mean for insurance and liability? Are you allowed cancel? Are you not allowed cancel? What are the penalties? So I think those are going to be massive challenges. it was Tuesday I was sitting down having my coffee and I just had this kind of sense in myself of oh this is nice I don't have anything to do today it's a really nice feeling this I haven't had it in a while because I have had I don't know how many days where I have nothing to do but there's a different sense of a day off when you've achieved something on Tuesday I was like oh I worked really, really hard to create something and now I have this chance to go, well done, you did it, relax, drink your coffee and move on to the next thing. The Closing of Ireland, a Dataset by Jennifer Walsh. That's all for this week. We hope you enjoyed listening. Remember, if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a nice review or feel free to get in touch with us. We're at CMC Ireland on socials or email us at amplify at cmc.ie. We'd love to hear from you. 
We'll be back in two weeks with a special episode on choral music as part of this year's City of Derry International Choir Festival. Until then, thanks for listening.